Welcome to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. And for today's episode, we are joined by Tom Winter. Tom is running as a Democrat for Montana's first congressional district, and he has been you know, gracious enough to come on today and tell us about his campaign. Tom, thank you for being here. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I have to warn your uh, listeners that there are two dogs under my feet if you hear any barking. I'm sure it'll, everything will be all right. Well, Tom, you know, I've had a few different people come on the podcast in the past and talk to us about why they're running for office. And as like a customary thing, I like to just kind of start off with that, but more or less gauge why people run for office. I think it's a very important question when we go into, you know, why people are doing what they do. Could you just tell us a little bit why you decided to run for Congress and was this cycle uh, special in any particular way? Well, first off, I'm a glutton for punishment. So there's that. Everyone knows that being involved in the political process nowadays is not necessarily the most pleasant thing, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Um, when I, so I was elected originally, um, early 30s, I'm 35 now, to be um, the representative for a district that voted for President Trump plus 11 points, was held by a Republican. I'm an unabashed progressive Democrat and also considered young by many Democrats, especially, but Republicans as well. And you know, it's not a question of why this cycle, it's a question before, I think for all of us, why have we not gotten involved? Why have we not felt empowered enough to do this? Uh, we are trying, we, the campaign that I'm running and our campaign are trying to be a model for other people, young people, people who feel like they've been left out of the political process in how they can do this and how they can do this well and make an impact. Uh, my time in the legislature, again, representing a district that might not have completely agreed with what we consider to be progressive values or democratic values, really actually was, and that was what I found, you know, there was broad agreement that we should, what, people should be allowed to, we should end the prohibition on recreational marijuana, that taxes should be cut for working people and increased on um, really, really, really rich people, you know, that government should work as people. And that is why I'm involved in this process now. The things I learned in that legislative seat are what inform my you know, candidacy for Congress. It's just so clear that something needs to change and it's, we can start with a new generation of political leaders. Absolutely. So I guess the reason why I specified this cycle, and I think it's gonna lead directly into the next thing I wanna ask you here, is we are currently in a time of, I guess, how I would characterize and how I've heard other people characterize it as extreme, like political apathy. You know, the especially for the Democratic base, you know, I think there's been a lot to be left desired by the Biden administration. And there are those who are feeling like, you know, why should we come back out and vote again for the Democratic Party when the things that we wanted did not get addressed in this most recent round of legislation? Uh, so Specifically to that end, what is your pitch to the Democratic voters in Western Montana who might feel a little less engaged in the political process right now? You know, it's not just Democratic voters that I think we need to be courting here. Montana has some of the highest rates of independent self-identification in the country, right? One thing Montanans need to know, by the way, and people outside of the state, 
I know I used to say this too until I got involved very much in the process. There is no registration for your party here. You are what you say you are in the moment. If you are an independent, you're an independent that day. If you're a Democrat, you're a Democrat that day. If you're a Republican, the same. So we get to decide what our party ID is when we walk into, basically when we walk into the ballot box and choose our ballot for these primaries. And then in the general, we just get to vote. So uh, to everyone involved here, I would say that, yes, I understand your concern around apathy. And I understand, especially when you're talking about President Biden's administration, you know, so much of what they did was an attempt to, I think, not an attempt, a successful play for young people to get involved and be a part of the process. And President Biden and the Democrats won, as they normally do, an overwhelming majority of young people. But polls are showing that that faith that young people placed in this administration is slipping. That's because many of the things that the administration and the Democratic Party promised, and I was a part of the party at the time and still am, like I was part of that promise to bring change to a rising cohort of leaders, like I said, who are under 35, I'm just at the edge, uh, who are suffering from, you know, the high, like, well, for one, student debt, you know, is just a mortgage on the future, not only of my generation, but of the entire country but also climate change legislation, um, what else, I mean, childcare so that we can afford to have families in the first place, you know, equitable work environments. It's, there has been a lack of movement there, you know, honestly, because of, you know, unified Republican opposition, but also, you know, there's also aspects of the Democratic Party that has no these changes for young people because they threaten existing power structures and they threaten, honestly, the wealth and privilege of an older generation. And that is a reason to get involved right now. It's also a reason to not be apathetic. We still have the power actually to make and change electoral outcomes. And the people in power are very afraid that our apathy will mean that we will not actually move their agenda forward. We need to make sure that people understand that the agenda of young people who are mostly, who are many feeling this apathy is the agenda of the entire country. And that the existential threats faced by young people such as climate change, inability to afford a house in your community anywhere in the country, those existential threats to our way of life and to our well-being are existential threats to the system as, the, as a whole. They're not just youth problems. They are the problems of moving forward. And so I understand people's apathy. I am also trying to model that we don't need to have that apathy. We actually have the political system kind of in our grasp right now. People are playing for our votes. We need to make sure that we forthrightly argue that we deserve what we were promised and that we deserve more than what we were promised. Okay. So, you know, let's start talking about what kind of, you know, how promises can turn into legislation a little bit. You had mentioned to me in the past that you worked directly, you know, uh, on Medicaid expansion in Montana when you were part of the state legislature. Now we are, you know, at the tail end here, or, you know, in the middle of, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, you know, a pandemic that has, you know, ravaged our planet and COVID-19, I think exposed a lot of issues that we have within our medical system. Now, mm. what exactly can the federal government do in order to shore up this medical system, which has been left pretty vulnerable? And, you know, like, do you have a specific policy in mind in order to address our healthcare issues in our country? Universal healthcare, full stop. There is no, uh, okay, so a million Americans died. I hear oftentimes people say like, there's this game people play, like what would happen after the apocalypse? What would you do in the zombie apocalypse? Where would you go? Montanans all have like bug out cabins and like 50 pound bags of rice in their basement. So we actually have answers, but it's like a fun parlor trick, the parlor game, the, the apocalypse happened. 
a million Americans died. The economy ground to a halt for a year and a half and is still recovering. Hundreds of, well, millions more suffer from long COVID. The world did stop. The, econ the economy did collapse. The healthcare system did break down. It's not around anymore as it was before. The for-profit health model failed us entirely. We had some of the highest rates of death and disease in the developed world. We are the wealthiest country on earth. We can't even protect our own people. If three years ago I said, hey, Desmond, you know, in the next two years, a million Americans are going to die. And you look at me like, do I need to go live in a hole? And your response would be no, actually. We, everything continues on. That is the absolute worst outcome and a dishonor to the memory of the people who died. The idea that we can just move forward and plug away with for-profit health companies, with insurance companies ensuring that they're still taking a pound of flesh from us even as we continue to die from this disease. We need universal health care. We still do. Just because you know, Democrats campaigned on it and certain elements of the party, and I would say just the general, you know, I think the wealthy people in this country fought that back. Broad agreement is found if you ask in, in poll numbers, do people think they deserve healthcare as Americans? They will say yes. The answer is still the same. We still need actual universal care. Though I've, I've actually outlined previously on our website in this prior campaign, and then we're putting it out again because things have changed, the ways that we can get there. There are concrete policy steps we can take to bring America in line with the vast majority, well, no, every single other developed nation on earth in guaranteeing healthcare. And we need to do that. And it's just, there's no other answer, really. There's not a different moral answer or a political answer. It's just that we need universal care now and to stop rationing care for the poor. Okay. I hear that completely. And, you know, I think along that same vein, another thing that was also exposed during this past time is housing insecurity. We are seeing our population of people who are unhoused explode across this country. It feels like less and less politicians know exactly what to do, or they're just throwing money at programs that aren't working, and people are still suffering. So you are running for a federal office. What can the federal government do about this housing crisis? And do you have something particularly that you want to bring up if you were to enter the halls of Congress as a new congressman? Well, you know, the federal government really sadly has a somewhat limited role and ability to, you know, as opposed to what needs to be done, I'd say state and local is where we really need to put our efforts. The federal government has a role too. I think it's important for everyone to know that uh, two important things. One, after 2008, which my generation graduated into, it was a great time to come out of college into the worst economic depression since the actual depression. And ever since, the building industry in the country has not invested in building new home housing units. They haven't. We knew this was coming. This is a structural problem. There are physically not enough roofs in the country to house the people that need them. Having said that also, there is the thing that actually makes homelessness and unhoused populations increase is not right as people would think and can be a problematic thought. You know, rising rates of mental illness or poverty that does not necessarily predestine your community to larger amounts of people that are unhoused. It is an actual lack of housing that does that and price increases in your housing market. Our market for housing is now broken. It's been nationalized in the state of Montana so that all of a sudden, you know, anyone can essentially, anyone from the West Coast can refi their house in Palos Verdes and afford the most expensive house in Missoula or, you know, Kalispell or in Phillipsburg or Libby. We now don't really live in a Montana-based property market. We live in a nationalized vacation-based property market. 
that itself is a breakdown, right? Now, the federal government has things they can do. I mean, for the federal, you know, what? Since post-war era, the federal government has been an active and willing participant in, not even pre-post-war, pre I would say post-World War I era, the federal government has been an active participant in ensuring through redlining and other programs that people of color and the poor are kept away from rich white people. We can be honest about that. We can also argue that knowing that history, we can do everything to ensure that justice is served by changing the federal government's policies towards, say, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, toward the banking industry, toward the mortgage industry, which is different in that sense from the institution that actually just does lending, to ensure that communities of color specifically, but also just people who have been left out entirely from the housing market, and that is so many people that are under age 35, because not only that group is poorer, but also more diverse than any rising group in American history deserves a home and deserves a roof over their head. We can do that one through, I think, source of income discrimination is one thing we need to eliminate right now. There's this idea, well, it's not an idea, it actually happens. If you are in need of housing and the government is giving you a voucher, say, which is a program widely accepted across the political you know, divide, people have housing vouchers, right? In Missoula, for instance, where I know pretty well, uh, we have enough, I've been talking to housing advocates, we have more than enough housing vouchers. It's that we don't have enough roofs to put people under with those housing vouchers. And moreover, we have the problem that landlords are able to discriminate based on whether or not you're using a voucher. So we, the landlords are actually legally allowed to discriminate based on the source of your income. So the government with our tax dollars is subsidizing getting people homes, a good idea throughout. Everyone agrees with this, or at least I think morally people should. But we allow landlords and the industry that supports them to discriminate on that program. We do not get the best value for the in tax money we spend. We also don't get the best value for the people that need homes. So source of income discrimination must be gone. It's just like anything else. And you know, no surprise, the people who are often lower income and benefiting from these programs are obviously the working poor, more often women and tend to be of color. It is essentially a discriminatory practice baked into our housing policy we could easily fix federally. Now, of course, that wouldn't fix the entire issue. We need, and as a, you know, as a member of Congress, it's a bully pulpit too. I need to be ensuring that I'm advocating for, for instance, zoning as many places as we possibly can. The tyranny of having single family homes right next to places where there are buses, subways, trains, where you can walk to work, uh, that's done in order to enforce, you know, keeping poor people away from rich people. And the government's been and had an active hand in that, and that needs to end. But that takes the form of people advocating at the state and local level as well. And so you'll see our campaign talking about that, even though it's not necessarily a federal issue. We are providing support and I think also trying to get publicity around these fixes that we could do to ensure that housing is fair, honestly. Okay. And you know what? When you when you speak about keeping you know uh, poor people away from rich people, rich people is definitely where I want to go next with this conversation. We're gonna be talking about you know corporations, billionaires, uh, your ideas around what needs to be done around that. But before we do any of that, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have more with Tom Winter and a few questions about corporations. Stay tuned. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. 
Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage-inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us to this episode of Independent Thought. We are still here with our candidate, Tom Winter. Tom, before the break, we had talked about, well, we were, we were beginning to talk about, you know, the rich people essentially being able to kind of keep poor people out of their neighborhoods, housing policy, so on and so forth. When I was looking at your platform, one of the things that you had mentioned was corporations and billionaires paying their fair share. This is a topic that Democrats and people on the left have been talking about relentlessly, yet we don't really see any movement on this front. So my question really comes into two prongs here. What exactly do you think needs to change? But more importantly, what is, what is currently happening that is preventing this from happening? And how do you think we should get around it? Uh, well, you know, where do we start on this? Uh, it's not just Democrats now. Everyone talks about it. They at least pay lip service to taxing billionaires and corporations. Uh, I think the Democrats have a better chance of doing it, actually. Now, having said that, of course, recall that when uh, President Biden put forth the Build Back Better agenda, which was the one that was going through involving, and then also they, ended up, they didn't pass that, but they did pass the um, infrastructure bill. Uh, Build Back Better is also well known by its opponents, which is every single GOP member of the Senate, plus Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. Recall that part of there was an element of it that was going to go in there to pay for it that included a tax specifically on billionaires. That was killed by my caucus, or what would be my caucus, the Democrats. They were certain elements of the party were mooting doing so. And then kind of party brass came in and said, uh, wait a minute, we don't want to tax, we don't actually want to tax billionaires. Now, I am again loyal Democrat, but with my caucus, want Democrat support, Democratic support, but also across the political spectrum. No party has an interest in taxing billionaires because billionaires are the people paying for the parties. Of course they don't. They're, they're literally the people, and they're not paying the salaries, but billionaires and corporations after Citizens United are the groups that fund political campaigns. I spend some of my days asking people for $5,800 checks. No one really has that in their bank account who is a, I, not normal is the wrong term to use. The vast majority of Montanans don't have 5,800 bucks to just write a check to me for, I would say. And that's within legal campaign contributions prior to Citizens United. 
So that just shows that rich people themselves honestly do get more time with candidates, even if it's just because we need to raise the money. Now, beyond that, obviously, dark money flowing into elections and, you know, I'd say the corporate and billionaire capture of our um, of our regulatory systems within Washington, specifically in the federal government, means that they continue to have an outside influence and now are able to purchase more influence. And the failure of that ability, I think, to bring the legislation to tax billionaires to pay for things like childcare for working Americans shows the problem. Now, do I think that there's a way to, it involves campaigns like ours openly and forthrightly saying how unfair it could possibly, could it be more unfair this idea that someone like Jeff Bezos who built Amazon. Jeff, we thank you for your service to America and capitalism and for getting my, what, uh, a box of nori and some socks to me in two days. That is a great American capitalist achievement and it's a good thing. However, Amazon and Jeff Bezos's anti-union stance, their anti-regulatory stances, their ability essentially to change the federal government rather than be regulated by the people as embodied by the federal government is the problem. Taxing is just one aspect. And it's really just a proxy for this idea in our campaign, and I'd say many other campaigns coming up, that are speaking about the way this fundamental problem, right? And your listeners can see that I'm putting one hand up and the other. Corporations and billionaires are in the ascendance. The federal government, which represents everybody else, 99.999% of Americans, is not. They are falling in power. It should be the other way around. Government should be regulating not only these billion, you know, these billion dollar corporations, but also the actions of billionaires so they're not able to take advantage of our system and further enrich themselves and impoverish the rest of us. In Montana's case, uh, we say this all the time, but these are historical issues as well. Montana, since honestly its founding, but you know, in the, essentially in the last hundred years, we are a net exporter of energy and materials. We are a resource, resource extraction state. There is no way to build the prosperity we see in places like Seattle. And by that, I mean also Amazon, one of the biggest companies on earth, and one that is helmed by Jeff Bezos, one of the richest men on earth. He's always launching himself into space in a rocket. He did that on the back of Montana's labor because Montana powers Seattle. You turn the lights on in Seattle, you do that because of Montana power. Seattle was built with coal and steel, things that came from our state, wealth transfers from where we are, to there. The compact that should be there in the original American compact was our part in creating that wealth would mean that the government would also support us. But what has happened instead is that wealthy people of places like Seattle, specifically Jeff Bezos and Amazon, have been able to use the wealth they extracted from us and from other people across the country and then control the rest of the system. Taxing is just the beginning of that though. It includes regulatory regimes that mean breaking up monopolies. And you, our campaign has been talking about that for quite a while, and I've been, been involved in anti-monopoly legislation since I was in the legislature. So this talk about how do we rebalance the system, of course, means taxation, for one, but it also means regulatory change. And so we're talking about that in our campaign often, and I've been fighting for that for five years since I was elected first time. So, You know, that, that's actually, I'm glad you brought up Jeff Bezos and and you know, his anti-union stance, because that's exactly where I want to go next. So the Amazon, there's Amazon, thankfully, finally has its first labor union uh, over in Staten Island. I've talked about it quite a bit on my podcast recently. You yourself are involved in a union. And and we have heard so much anti-union messaging 
across basically all forms of mainstream media over the last couple of decades. I've heard nothing but anti-union stances, I think my entire life. And, and so I think mm -hmm. when you ask, you know, you know, some average people, like their first thoughts about unions are negative, but as someone who's directly involved in one, can you explain to me what exactly do you think, you know, should be the pushback against these anti-union messaging? And why do you think that unions are important, you know, especially in today's economy? I mean, whenever anyone says in our flooded environment, you know, information environment that you should be against something, consider the speaker. I haven't heard a union say that they should be anti-union or a underpaid worker or someone who's paid less than their colleague because a union's not affording them protections that the government won't. Anti-union literature and anti-union sentiment always comes from anti-union companies. And recall that our news systems, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, those are large corporations. Corporate media doesn't like unions, no shit. Nor does any corporation that controls the things that we talk about and say. And the reason that is, is because they have put power in workers' hands and not in bosses' hands. I'm a member of IBW 206. Um, our campaign was the first campaign in Montana history to unionize. Um, we were instrumental in getting the Democratic Party to finally unionize as well. Not only is that just living our values, which is kind of honestly separate from unions, but it's also this idea that, well, how's this? We hear from um, conservatives often that a rising tide lifts all, boat, li lifts all boats. Well, consider this idea that the reason that you have a weekend, the reason that you have overtime, the reason that children can't be forced to work is because of the efforts of unions. It wasn't AT&T and what Wayfair, you know, they didn't want to give these things to us. We fought for them. Our pro, our forefathers fought for them in unions and got these protections that then were enshrined in law. The biggest problem we have in terms of, so for 40 years, working people's wages have comparatively been going down compared to the wealthy, right? The purchasing power of a working class wage is lower than it was now than it was in 1970. The minimum wage was currently kept up with the productivity of the average American worker would be above $30. Right now it's still $7. Unions would be able to fix this. The reason these things are happening to American workers, and specifically young people, the majority of workers at this point, is because unions are all at the nadir of their power. Only 6% of the American workforce is in a union. That is not because the unions have abandoned us. That is because the federal government has worked with corporations to break the back of organized labor. And it needs to change. Montana has a long history of union activity. And the reason until the 90s, I think, that Montana, Idaho, and I believe Wyoming was the part of the country that had actually the least um, difference between the highest wage and the lowest. We were actually one of the places that had one of the fairest economies in the country was because it was one of the most unionized parts of the country. Unions ensure a broadly shared prosperity for all and also ensure the dignity of your work. And the idea that there's is, I understand because I was fed the same propaganda for, four, for 35 years, but consider that propaganda comes from one place. If you ever go to a union hall or meet someone who's in a union or organizing, and I am happy to connect you, dear listener, with an organizer if you'd like to organize your workplace or talk about organizing hours, what they talk about is we are fighting for just the basic minimum, a living wage, the dignity of our work, being able to take breaks if you unionize your workplace, the odds are that you're going to get higher pay and you also might get time off for maternity and paternity leave, or you might be able to get a flex day at the end on a Friday. It's not any huge ask that people want. 
and it's not going to break the back of the of your boss or the company you work for. You know, a, a workplace that is suffused with dignity and good pay and respect from employer to employee, everyone would say, including business schools, that that is a workplace that is actually doing better work and was serving customers better as well and creating more value for all. So unions are the key to changing what's been going on. I'd say politically as well. We've lost the ability and understanding of how to organize our politically, partly because we've lost the ability and understanding how to organize ourselves in our workplace. I was speaking recently to the Teamsters in Butte, which is a, as many people would know here, is a union stronghold from long ago that still definitely is a union town. And I lost, I was there at the meeting to speak. And then afterwards, I was just listening in and I don't want to, you know, these meetings are, they talk about their private issues as well. But, you know, there were the garbage collectors specifically were speaking about issues that they had with their union. And I just, you're hearing people who do the basic work of making sure, the essential work of making sure our cities and towns work, you know, uh, maintaining roads, garbage collection, recycling. These are jobs that should and do deserve dignity in the things that, in the work that they do. They were some of the most cogent arguments, not only for unionizing, but for like complex contract negotiations going on in open with their peers. They knew how to advocate for themselves. Of course they did because they're workers and they know what's best for themselves. But they were doing that in a forum in which they were empowered to then speak to their employer. And what that meant is that they knew how to organize themselves. And so I just watching people, it was so inspiring, honestly, to watch people who were saying, I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm not getting what's in my contract. And I think I deserve better. How do we fix this? And then the, the group worked together to figure out a way to answer that problem. Is there anything other than, that's just politics too. And so when we talk about unions, what we're really talking about is the ability to organize and people's understanding of their own worth, not just when it comes to their boss, but within the system in general. And in our campaign, again, we're trying to foster that idea that you are worth more and your ability to argue for yourself is part of collective action. And that collective action is voting and it's politics and it's organizing. Okay. So, you know what, let's, uh, I'm actually going to like take this opportunity to, you know, bring the episode, you know, like right back home to the very beginning where we talked about the fact that you are running for the first congressional, you know, seat in Montana. So now I, I want to kind of end the conversation more or less like this. When people go to vote in the primary election, and can we just remind the viewers really quickly, when is the primary election in Montana? Primary is the first week of June, everybody, but you will get your ballots very soon, actually. It's mail. Ballot. Okay. So when people go to fill out their ballots, whether in person or, or through the mail, why should they vote for you and send you to be the representative, you know, to, you know, to Congress this year? I, I would say, you know, you're not supposed to ask answer with a question, but I will. And I was like, I was speaking before. Does anyone think what's going, going on in the last two years or the last five years or the last 40 has been going well in our country? Does anyone think that regardless of where you are, even if you're a Trump voter, I don't care. Does it seem like you are going to, your children are going to better have life, have better life out. Most people don't think that. Our campaign is trying to organize, like I was saying, and empower people to know and to demand that they deserve more than this shit that we're getting. We do not have to live in a world where you were paid a poverty wage for your work. We do not have to live in a political system that fails us so utterly that there are not enough places to live in the richest country on earth. 
we do not have to live in a healthcare system that skims money off out of our pockets and fails us so utterly that a million people died in the last year and a half or two years. We don't have to do that. We can organize and we can demand better from our government. And having been part of the government in the state house in Montana and having won over, which I don't like partisan politics, but it does matter, having won over as a progressive Democrat, Republicans, having won over a district that voted for Republican, having won over a district that voted for President Trump plus 11 points. I know how to do this. I know how to knit our communities back together and to empower people to understand that they deserve more. And so if I'm asking for your vote, what I'm really asking for is a vote for yourself, that you believe that you have the power to change things and that you deserve better than what you're getting because our campaign is built on that entire idea. So we would hope you'd vote for us as well, of course, but vote because you matter more than the system as it is now and you deserve better from it. And so when you're doing that at home at your kitchen table, when you're doing that in the ballot box, please, when you're thinking about the primary, it's not who do I like more, it's who is talking to me and who is empowering me to get what I deserve. And I hope you'll see that our campaign is doing that because we've been fighting for that. Honestly, I've been fighting for that for five years. And I, I'm going to continue to do that, hopefully, in Congress. Okay, thank you so much. And, and where can people find you at if they want to get more involved with you or your campaign? Oh, well, they can find me. I live in Polson, so they can find me if you're in Montana. You can probably find me walking around in Polson. Um, I work down in Missoula as well. Uh, our campaign website is Winter for Montana, all spelled out. It's my last name. I name Tom Winter, by the way. Uh, and also, we're on social media. Find us everywhere, please. It's uh, one thing I would say to everybody. Do not hesitate to reach out to our campaign through uh, direct messages, phone, email. Um, stop me on the street. It happens more than you would think. Remember, Montana is one big, tiny town. So just make sure that you're, and I would say this for everyone who's running, if you're thinking about another candidate, it doesn't matter. Ensure that you feel comfortable contacting them about your issues that you're seeing in your community. Because the only way you're going to get good politics, and you're also going to keep me on my toes if you're opposing me, is to ensure that everyone is apprised of what's going on in our community so that we can answer them in the different ways to win your vote. So please do that. Contact us any way you can. Okay. Thank you so much. So we are going to wrap up this portion of the episode here. Uh, we do have a couple more questions for Tom, including, you know, like his thoughts on the climate crisis and the political divide in this country between Democrats and Republicans. We're going to get to that in our bonus segment here. Uh, which will be on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook. So make sure that you head on over to there to hear the last part of this episode. For everyone else, thank you so much for tuning into this part of Independent Thought with our candidate episode with Tom Winter. We'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.